Hello, and welcome back to The Offspring Magazine, the podcast. It's Bea, and I will be hosting today's podcast. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Asia Biega, who is a tenure-track faculty member at the Max Planck Institute for Security and Privacy in Bochum, leading the Responsible Computing Group. Her work focuses on studying principles of responsible computing, data governance and ethics, and digital well-being. The major themes we discuss in the podcast today include what are some of the biggest ethical issues with big tech companies and social media? What data protection laws are there to protect our personal data? How can we design ethical algorithms? And what are some of the most challenging problems that need to be solved to achieve digital well-being? Asia engages in interdisciplinary collaborations, one being with the Max Planck Institute for Innovation and Competition. She also has experience working at Microsoft during her postdoc, which has allowed her to experience the difference between research done in academia and in industry. And that is also something we will talk about today. So with that, please enjoy this episode. Hi, Asia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, why don't we just start by having you introduce yourself? Tell us what you do. Hi, um, I'm Asia Birga. Thank you for the invitation. And I'm, I'm, I'm uh, really grateful to be interviewed on this podcast. Um, I am a computer scientist um, and I lead the Responsible Computing Research Group at the Max Planck Institute for Security and Privacy. I saw on your website that you did a postdoc at a different Max Planck Institute, right? I did my PhD at the oh, Max Planck Institute, yes, yeah. uh, at the MPI for Informatics, and I was jointly advised by um, another person from the MPI from Software Systems. How is this institute different to the one that you came from? Like, uh, how is the research work different? Mm -hmm. Well, the way the research works is, is relatively similar because um, all of these institutes do research in computer science. Mm. Uh, our institute has a, a certain thematic focus, right, because we're, we focus on um, technical foundations and interdisciplinary aspects of security and privacy. Um, my research is related more to the privacy part. We work uh, quite a bit on um, aspects of data protection and data governance, uh, but also topics related to responsibility, how to responsibly develop um, computing systems and algorithms and how to account for different harms to the society and individuals that, that stem from uh, computational technology. Yeah, gosh, it's a really hot topic. Like I do think that um, date, especially data protection is something that a lot of people are not really thinking of or maybe aren't that aware of, mm -hmm. um, but it's extremely important. So in the field of responsible computing, what is responsible computing? Right. The, um, there's an interesting trajectory uh, to that research area, because even 10 years ago, I think very few people realized that it's important to think about those re responsibility concepts in, in, in computing. I mean, of course, the topic of privacy is a, is a very old topic. People have thought about privacy for a very long time. But at some point, we we realize that uh, computational systems can harm people in all kinds of different ways. It's not only privacy. It's also about um, computational systems and algorithms, being able to discriminate against different groups of people, 
um, you know, harming individuals by, you know, having us um, glued to our computers and scrolling yeah. endlessly. Right, that's like social media right, right. now. Uh, yeah, there are threats to democracy that come from, you know, different w ways in which social media can manipulate us in, into different worldviews and, and so on and so forth. So responsible computing is, is, this, um, is this very broad area that, that recognizes those different harms, that recognizes that we should stop thinking about computing as, you know, purely math and algorithms that yeah. you know things that are that are um very well defined very objective that can be defined in mathematical terms uh, but that really computing is is a very complex ecosystem that consists of not only you know, computers or digital technology and algorithms and data uh, but there are also people um that are inherent to those systems at yeah. uh, different stages. Yeah. So to make um, computing more responsible, is that does that have something to do with the design of the algorithms? It has to do with the design of the algorithms. It has to do with um, how we collect and how we process data. It has to do with how we design the interfaces through which people interact with yeah. algorithms and, and with, with systems. Um, so. The, the interventions that we're developing in the area of responsible computing um, um, tr do try and, and should focus on all the different elements that um, that um, constitute the um, yeah. digital ecosystem. So it's clearly not that easy. You can't from one day to the next just be like, I'm going to go from irresponsible computing to responsible computing, because there seems like there's so many different you know factors that you need to to factor in and also different departments, I'm assuming, which You're then right. all have to work together. Mm -hmm. You're right. Um, and this is the reason why this is a, a very active area right now, because we're at the stage where we don't even understand. There are lots of unknown unknowns. So yeah. we don't even fully understand, like, what are all the ways in which those systems can harm people? So we're in, in that exploratory discovery stage. Uh, from there, once, once we have a good understanding or we have a good overview of what we should even account for, then we can um, like develop interventions to the algorithms. We can come up with better ways to deal with data, for generating data. Um, we have to also focus on the interactions um, between the users and, and um, um, the algorithms or the interfaces and the systems. Um, and as you mentioned, all of those responsibility concepts, are, they're so intertwined. Yeah. Um, so one um, maybe particularity about this research area is that it's... it's um, it's important to collaborate with others who have complementary expertise. Uh, and it's important to have a good understanding of how these different responsibility concepts relate to each other. Yeah. Uh, because it's, it, it's one thing that one, one threat uh, to developing solutions in this area has been shown in a number of different contexts so, uh, so far is that sometimes when we are developing a solution that we think is helping in terms of one of the responsibility concepts, we end up harming people in, in you know, other right. ways. Yeah. There are lots of different trade-offs that one has to understand and account for. And just to give you one specific example, um, there is a, one of the topics that we have worked on in the past is operationalizing the, the concept of data minimization from the data mm -hmm. protection laws. And that principle of data minimization um, basically tells us that we have to collect that service providers or data processors have to collect data that is necessary for very specific purposes. So they, they have to be very precise about what it is that they're doing in a system and what kinds of data they need for it and only collect what is necessary. Um, 
Now, another responsibility concept that we have worked on in the past is this concept of fairness. So we want to make sure that the systems that mm -hmm. we're developing do not discriminate against different groups of people. But to be able to measure that, whether an algorithm discriminates, we need to have information, we need to have sometimes sensitive uh, personal information that uh, that describe that tells us whether a person belongs to one of the minoritized right. or yeah, historically underrepresented groups. And so here already, uh, this example shows that these two principles can be at odds they with each other, each other, right? Other, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so what do we do in practice? And for example, GDPR, uh, does what, not... what is GDPR? Oh, right, right. Yeah, the, um, that's um, um, General Data Protection Regulation. So okay. that's our, our European Union's uh, data protection regulation. It it does it it specifies a number of high level principles uh, that we should uh, account for that we should follow when we um, process personal user data, uh, but it does not specify a hierarchy of these principles. Okay. Um, so we have to figure out how to account for them possibly at the same time. And very often we end up with these trade-offs that we have to reconcile, somehow reconcile in practice. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really, really complicated and really hard. So then how do you, how does your research kind of fit into all of this? And like, what specifically do, do you research and do? Mm -hmm. So within the, that area, so that's one of the three areas that we pursue in, in our the group. data the, minimization, the, mm -hmm, the, yeah, the data protection, data, oh, data governance, yeah, and data yeah. minimization is just one example um, of the principles that we're focusing on. Um, and my uh, my path to to this research area. Um, was a bit winding, so I, I, I'm, yeah. um, if we, right, if we have time for this, no, I, please I can... <laughs> go go into that. It's, I'm sure that will be very interesting. Um, these days, we do a lot of interdisciplinary work because we discovered uh, that um, in, in this area in particular, it um, um, you can do more impactful contributions when you collaborate with people who have this complementary expertise, as I have mentioned yeah. before. Um, I am trained as a computer scientist originally. Um, so during my PhD, I, I, I worked in computer science and focused on computer science projects. Um, I worked um, on topics related to privacy and fairness in search systems from a computational angle. And when, when I finished my PhD and I started my postdoc, um, I, I moved to Microsoft Research uh, for my postdoc. Uh, and I worked in a group uh, called FATE which stands for Fairness, Accountability, Transparency, and Ethics in AI. And that was a group, um, it was an interdisciplinary group. So, so this is at Microsoft, mm -hmm. right? Oh, so you did your PhD at a company. I, I did my PhD at Max Planck. Uh, sorry, your postdoc. Yeah, postdoc. So my postdoc, I did at Microsoft Research. And that was the first time where, when I worked in an interdisciplinary environment. So I, I you know, I really, I saw for the first time yeah. that it's possible to do projects in a very different way. Uh, I, I learn about the perspectives people from other fields have. And so w when I made a transition so during my PhD, I, I, I had some of those um, projects related to privacy in, in search systems. And one of the projects focused on uh, what we then call uh, profiling privacy. Uh, so um, the details of, of this project are maybe not very important for the, the point that I'm trying to make here. Um, but uh, one question, one thing that we showed as part of the project is that when you want to personalize uh, results um, of search engines or recommender systems to a particular person, typically 
you need to collect some information about that person to know what their mm -hmm. interests are, what their taste is, and so on and so forth. Um, and what we showed as part of the project is that you don't necessarily need to store all of those profiles um, of individuals as they are, because this is very often is very personal data, right? Yeah. It, it creates like a very, very detailed picture yeah. of who we are. Um, and um, yeah, we, we show that what you can basically do is to randomly shuffle mm. items, pieces of data of different users into more synthetic profiles and use those yeah. to interact with the service provider and personalize the results. And so that was one takeaway from, from my PhD that we don't need exact user profiles to personalize relatively well. And so when I started my postdoc, um, I talked to a few colleagues to uh, start of new projects. Uh, and when I, um, I, I mentioned this, the, this question, I said, well, we don't need exact user profiles, but what I don't know yet is which data exactly do we need from each individual user profiles to uh, provide them with very, with high quality personalized results. So that, that was an open question that I had at the time. And a colleague who was trained in a very different field um, heard that question and said, well, that sounds very much like a data minimization principle from different data protection laws. And that just really sparked my interest. So I started reading a little bit about data minimization and I thought, well, it really sounds like a very similar yeah. question, maybe phrased slightly differently because of the you know, disciplinary differences and that language is very often different in, in those disciplines. Um, and then I decided to um, reach out to a colleague of mine who back at the time was at the MPI for Innovation and Competition in Munich, ah, Michelle Fink. Yeah. I, you know, called, emailed her saying um, who I was and that, you know, I stumbled upon this interesting parallel between what I was interested in mm. computationally and data minimization, whether she thought there, there was something to it. And she thought that was interesting. And that's how we ended up collaborating on this. And as part of this collaboration, we've, we've, we've published some computer science papers, but we, then we also uh, published a uh, paper in the um, um, interdisciplinary journal uh, mm. that uh, targets the audience for uh, technology regulation so wow that's then, cool mm -hmm. so, so then what is her role in the collaboration so i get your role mm -hmm. right which mm -hmm. is the computer science mm -hmm. part what what would be her role mm -hmm. yeah so uh, okay, it depends on the particular project we we had a couple of different projects um we on our side we took the lead on computing projects and in those computing projects uh, what we wanted to ensure is that whatever solution we develop is actually legally sound yeah. or would be an interpretation that a legal scholar would consider um, legally sound. Uh, so then her role was to, you know, take a look at what we're doing. And then when we are describing our results, provide some legal background, provide some contextualization so, so that we can add a little bit of nuance to what mm. we're producing instead of saying, here is an algorithm and here are some results. We basically can say, well, you know, here is the result and it seems like there is there is this trade-off here. And so she can tie it back to, to some of the discussions that are happening in the law. Uh, so this is the, the kind of collaboration that can happen in computer science project. And then we, we collaborated on, on the um, legal um, journal paper. Um, and there she was the lead in, in yeah. that project. Uh, so then in, in that paper, we conducted a, a techno-legal analysis where we tried to 
surface the reasons why we think the principle of data minimization is not currently implemented to a larger extent. Um, my role in this project was say, to provide computational evidence and we dug um, yeah. uh, you know, some literature from computer science and we showed like, look, we have some techniques that could be adapted. We have computational evidence, empirical evidence that shows that um, at, at least when you think about individual algorithms or individual models, we're collecting much more data than those models would actually need. And so we wanted to get uh, to the core of, you know, why this principle yeah. is not implemented to a larger extent. So wh why do we collect so much more data than what we actually need? Is it because it's easier or because companies want that or I don't know, companies or whatever, you know, people want that data so that maybe in the future they can do something else with it? Mm -hmm. Both of these are 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 what are some of the reasons for why we do yeah. this. We have convenience, definitely. Yeah. Um, thinking about the future, it's 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 one of the biggest arguments uh, for why people think data minimization might might harm our digital mm -hmm. ecosystems. Um, right. We we want our economy to stay competitive. I think companies that have to comply with data minimization um, might put themselves at a disadvantage compared to companies right. that can collect without any limits. Then, uh, of course, it's hard to predict what technology we're going to come up with uh, in a year or two or yeah. in 10 years. Um, uh, currently, responsibility principles or a good practice would be to not collect data until we actually need it. Um, yeah. But then, of course, it's it's an ongoing discussion for how to reconcile these two ends of the spectrum. Um, right. And I guess it's also sometimes hard to prove, you know, why you need data and that you only need this data for this. Like it's, you know, it's it's so hard to prove what you're actually going to do. And I think, you, yeah, I, I understand the point also with innovation that if other companies are allowed to collect loads of data and mm -hmm. you're not you're at a disadvantage there, mm -hmm. but it's finding that fine line of, you know, that balance, which is so hard to do. That's right. But it, it is a very interesting question. It it really is. Um, yeah. There are some other aspects to, to, um, to why data protection principles are not implemented. And the fact that they are underinterpreted is, is, an, is another reason. Um, so typically, so so the the principles in GDPR and in data protection, other data protection laws, they're very often sp um, specified in a relatively abstract way, relatively high level way, uh, for some good reasons because we don't want to have to update the laws every time yeah. a new technology emerges, uh, and so that judges have enough room for contextual interpretation. Um, but this, again, this the, there is a tension between the way those principles are specified and what we computer scientists or engineers need to implement those principles in practice. Because at the end of the day, we have to convert them into concrete mathematical definitions, right. into concrete algorithms. So how do we go from a principle that says basically, well, data should be uh, limited, adequate, relevant to what is necessary right, right. To, yes, to an yes, algorithm? Yes. And so a lot of research that we're doing is sort of, you know, tries to bridge b between the two. Yeah. Um, there are data protection authorities very often issue some guidelines for how to interpret those high level principles. But very often this, th those guidelines are still not specific enough to you know, co convert them into concrete algorithmic designs. 
And so, um, yeah, some, some of my, our papers uh, basically try to provide some interpretations. We, we say, look, in this kind of a system, you could interpret it this way. Here's a mathematical definition. And if we interpret it this way, here are some simulations where we show what the consequences might be in terms of the performance yeah. of the algorithm, in terms of how an algorithm might perform for different groups of people, and, and so on and so forth. So, uh, uh, yeah, the work that we're doing sort of tries, tries to right. bridge and tries to provide con concrete interpretations yeah. and concrete guidelines. Do you think that, um, like, the legal authorities, they want a lot of data protection, data minimization, it's just very hard for the computer scientists to respond to that? Or is it vice versa, that the computer scientists could respond to it, there's just not so much, I don't know, motivation to introduce laws? It, it's probably both. Okay. <laughs> so, right, I, I, I talked about this one direction, though, you know, it's hard, yeah. interpretations are missing. But then in the other direction, you're right, right, because of the reasons that, that we uh, just discussed, um, 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 companies or different data processors um, might be unwilling to yeah. you know, implement those principles to a large extent. So I, I think it's a it's it's an ongoing it's conversation. Mm -hmm. It's it's a process. Yeah, um, I see. And um, are there a lot of different research groups that are also working on similar to what you do, like computer science of data minimization, data protection? Or would you say that it's a very new field and you're one of the first ones to work on this? Oh, we're definitely not the first ones to work on data protection. Um, um, we um, definitely the, the novelty that is in our work is at, um, you know, concretely interpreting some of those principles in the context of data-driven systems and machine learning systems. Yeah. Uh, so this is a gap that we noticed a couple of years ago. Um, Again, coming back to the data minimization as, a, as an example, um, when I when I started um, reading to try to understand how do currently um, how is data minimization interpreted currently, I quickly realized that there are some guidelines that talk about the implementation of this principle in very concrete contexts mm. and very well defined um, data types. Um, for an example, you would have a guideline that that says if you were an HR company, you probably have no reason to collect people's blood types. So, <laughs> yeah. right? so, so very, very concrete uh, mm. example of a system or for, of a context and very, very concrete, concrete data type. But many, many of the data driven systems that we interact with daily, right? Search engines, recommender systems, social media, they're collecting, they, they do collect some structured information about yeah. us, right? When we sign up for a service, very often they ask us, well, what is your gender? What, do you, yeah. what is your age? They figure out our location based on our IPs and so on and so forth. But they also collect a lot of interaction data. Yeah. So data sometimes, some of this data is, is data that we explicitly generate. So if I come to a search engine, um, you know, I type a search query, so I'm aware that I'm generating this data, even though there have been some studies that, that show that a lot of people don't really realize that companies are collecting this data and storing them in, in their profiles. But at least, you know, I'm aware that I, this is something that I'm generating. And there are a lot of um, what people sometimes call behavioral traces. So this is the data that is being collected by companies online, but very often we don't realize it's happening. Yeah. So these are things like, you know, how how does my how does my mouse move? Where where is my pointer? How much time does my pointer pointer stay on this part of the website? Yeah. How much attention do I pay you, you know to different 
parts of the timeline, like what is the speed of scrolling, right? The, the companies are able to detect differences in the speed of scrolling that, that are, are very tiny. And that is already a signal that something caught your interest. Yeah. Um, so, so lots of these behavioral traces that, that um, um, are being collected there. Um, now, how do we minimize this data? This data yeah. is very often used to train algorithms that, for example, try to predict something about the, about us or, or our behavior or our, you know, sales preferences yeah. and, and purchase, purchasing preferences. And, and, um, so we quickly realized that most of the guidelines that are available are not, um, it, it's really unclear how to apply them in, in the context of data-driven machine learning systems. So this is a gap that, that we discovered um, a, a few years ago, and we thought, well, you know, this is important, right? Because this is where data minimization like re really matters. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's hard, though, because, you know, like on Instagram, for example, Instagram does a lot of like targeted marketing, mm -hmm. um, which makes complete sense. You know, it's mm -hmm. like obviously to be the best social media platform out there, they want to like their job is to show you what you're interested in. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they're really successful at, but they're so successful because they have so much data about us. Mm -hmm. But then there's also something very wrong about it because we're unaware of the fact that they have this data. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the biggest problems is that a lot of the times um, where data is taken away from us that we're just not aware of. And the reason why we're not aware of it is, I don't know, I think it must have something to do with us not understanding the way the technology works. Mm -hmm. And maybe they're not being enough transparency, mm -hmm. you know, about the way things work. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's it's just it's a very hard topic, but something mm -hmm. needs to be done about us becoming aware of the data mm -hmm. that's getting taken mm -hmm. away. And like, I know that TikTok, if you read the terms of conditions of TikTok, for example, they specifically say, like, we have the right to monitor, you know, how long you spend on each post or how the scrolling is. But who reads the terms of right. condition? <laughs> so I feel like the regulation is there and it's like, yeah, you have to put the terms of conditions there, but no one reads them. Everyone right. presses yes. So like, that's not useful either. No. You know? no one has the time to do this and they're written in a way. I mean, they're written. I mean, what they want to do is to protect the company from liability, right? They, yeah. It's not about explain, being transparent to the user about, about what is going on. And data protection, I love that you're mentioning transparency as an aspect because this is also another uh, one of the other principles that data protection laws um, um, require of, yeah. of service providers. Um, again, one that is currently a subject of uh, active research because then again, what does transparency mean? It's going to mean different things in the context of different systems, it's going to mean a different thing to different groups of users. Um, so transparency and explainability is is, is also an, an, an interesting question here. Uh, in terms of data collection, um, I mean, I'm sure um, everybody who lives in Europe knows about, you know, consent uh, yeah. pop-ups. Yeah. <laughs> Where, yes, yeah. explain them to me, please. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, they're, they're an attempt to let people know about what is going on with their data and give them a chance to decide uh, whether they're fine yeah. with their data being processed for different purposes. Um, of course, there are lots of issues with how they're being implemented in practice. And that's just another example of, you know, a process that is just very iterative. Um, what about cookies, for example? Like, what is cookies? Because isn't that also like kind of something similar to... <laughs> If you press allow, then they have access to your mm -hmm. data or you mm -hmm. give them the consent to use it. 
Yeah, cookie is um, basically a piece of data that is stored in your browser or on your computer that allows websites to um, identify you when you visit, revisit websites and basically track you uh, as you okay. um, as you browse the web. Because a lot of the times yeah. you can't press no, like you have to press yes, I allow. There isn't even the option to say no. So I never know what to do in that case. I mean, to be honest, I'm I'm a victim of being oblivious to this. I just press yes, 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 mm -hmm. yes, without thinking mm -hmm. about it. But I feel like there's sometimes there's not even the option to say no. In theory, every company should give you an option to say no. And in theory, they should um, provide you with exactly the same service. Right. right. Uh, of course, it, it doesn't always happen in practice because of that. Well, there are, of course, issues of enforcement. Enforcement yeah. is um, often very costly and time consuming. Um, right. So so in theory, we should be able to, to reject the cookies. And in theory, also rejecting should be as easy as consenting um, to, to yeah. data processing. Um, that brings us to the topic of dark patterns. What are <laughs> and, dark patterns? <laughs> dark patterns are um, can be thought of as uh, designs. Uh, most often we think of them as interface designs that basically try to compel us or manipulate us into making choices. Right. Um, in, in, in this particular online context of data collection, making cho choices that are um, against our right to privacy. Um, an example of a dark pattern that you mentioned that it's sometimes difficult to to reject. Uh, very often there is an option to reject. It's just that it's very very hard to find. So for example, you have that like a, be, yeah. Yeah. yeah very often you would have like a very clear button that that says accept with like a bright color and bright yeah. font, and then rejection is somewhere there in a text as a link, you know, small ah, yeah, font. Yeah. And so there there yeah it's 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 another topic that people in in this field are are uh, researching what kinds of dark patterns are being implemented and you know how do we um, yeah you know, are there any kind of rules of like what has to be done uh, apart from you have to give the user the option to press allow or don't allow to my data are, are there any more specific rules that are implemented either by the government or by companies, corporations itself. Mm -hmm. So there are some best practice guidelines. Okay. Um, um, there are some research papers that show like what, what is the right, what is an ethical way to provide people with those choices. Um, there are um, companies that are sort of intermediaries that a lot of websites actually um, uh, resort to. So they use their services to build their consent notices. Mm -hmm. um, in one of our research studies, we actually showed that out of you know 10,000 most popular websites on the web, a lot of um, those websites use those intermediaries for their consent mechanisms. So then those intermediaries, of course, have a huge role in, in terms of the practices that are being um, um, implemented in practice. Um, when it comes to specifying and I, again, a disclaimer here that I am not a legal scholar, but a computer yeah. scientist. Uh, um, but very often what happens is that when a principle is underinterpreted, for example, we don't, we, you know, there's a principle that says, well, consent should be, it should be as easy to consent as to decline. Um, um, and a company is sued over, um, somebody sues a company basically mm -hmm. saying, well, the design that you have actually uh, does not seem like um, it give, it's as easy to comply as it is to decline. Uh, sorry, it, it, it is as easy to accept as it is to yeah, decline. Yeah. Um, and 
there is a court judgment that says it is indeed illegal, uh, then that sometimes changes the practice, right? Because okay. then you have mm -hmm. a, a con concrete um, yeah. sort of judicial decision that, that um, determines this. Right. Do you think if companies were more transparent about the way they use our data, we would be more willing to share our data? Oh, that's a good question. Uh... <laughs> it's hard because I've thought about mm -hmm. it and I go both ways because I'm like, right, like, you know, if I know what my data is being used for and I can see that there is some benefit, mm -hmm. then I'm happy to share it. But then you might also realize that actually there's really no benefit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so then maybe you're going to, you know, be, become more aware and so share less data. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what your opinion is on this. It's a very good question. I think this could easily go both ways, and I, I cannot recall any any relevant research that, that could give us an answer here. And I think that an answer would be very complex. Yeah. Uh, the reason for this is, right, as, as you mentioned, um, um, people might interpret it differently. Even if you get the same sort of benefit from a system, everybody might interpret it differently in terms of mm -hmm. the, their the personal benefit to them. Um, I also think it's difficult to reason about this because of the temporal aspect. So I might be fine if a company collects my data now, but 10 years from now, I'm going to be a very different person. And so maybe I won't be fine with this company having my data from 10 years ago. And I think this is especially critical. Uh, for example, when you, uh, when you, when you generate some data, when you're a teenager, right. And yeah. 10 years, 15 yeah. years later, you, you become a very different person. And then you, maybe you would want all of that data from your teenage years to be wiped, uh, um, not stored, not being somewhere there. So I think this temporal aspect is very difficult. Another factor that complicates this is that, um, the data that companies collect rarely is used for one single purpose, Yeah. right? Even. Even a, um, a company that offers you either movie recommendations or music recommendations, it's not like there is a single algorithm and a single uh, task that the company is solving for you. You know, you you um, might get some daily recommendations or long term recommendations like discoveries. Um, so, it right how so I'm thinking how would we even um, present this information to the users? What what is being data yeah. used for? There are just so many things that this data yeah. is used for. All of them have different risks. Uh, all of them ha have different benefits. Um, so I think there there would be lots of opportunities um, in terms of um, um, communication, like how to communicate what, what is going on, how to visualize, yeah. uh, how to make people aware of the risks. And right. Very complicated. Yeah, I find topic. it. It's very complicated. But I find it. I do find it a problem that people use the internet consistently. Every almost everything they do, you know, is on the internet or on social media but we don't actually understand the way it works. It it means that we need to put a lot of trust in these systems, um, which is good, but I think that, you know, in some cases it's not, and I think people can take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I just, I think transparency would would be good, but then how, what do you say? How do you present this data? Okay. I have no idea because I don't understand the data myself, so. It's it's hard, but then also speaking about what gets put on the internet, is there a way to delete it again, or is there a way to give information to algorithms or companies, but then they have the ability to wipe it away? Mm -hmm. So there is uh, this thing called the right to be forgotten. Um, so yes, at least here in Europe, uh, we have the right to tell the company uh, to delete our data. Um, 
there are lots of interesting computational research questions related to the enforcement of, of that law. Um, one example is when your personal data uh, has been used to train a machine learning right, model. Exactly. Um, so it's not just stored there somewhere in a database. It has been converted and yeah. it sort of became a, a, a part of a model. Basically, the model, basically, you can think of this as some set of parameters yeah. or some weights that your data has influenced. And so implicitly, uh, that, that data is you, you know, um, a tiny part of, of that big model. And then the question is, does deleting your data mean we have to update this model somehow? Yeah. Um, it has been shown that very often, even if a model is just a set of parameters or, or, or some weights, um, you can actually recover the data that has been used to train it uh, with large um, accuracy. Uh, so now the question is... Wait, say that again. Say mm -hmm. that again. I didn't understand that. Mm -hmm. So sure. if you give an algorithm data for it or a mm -hmm. model, mm -hmm. you give them data, mm -hmm. then, then what? And you delete that data. Um, it, when you have a model, and you can think of this, say, as just some set of parameters yeah. um, that are used in some mathematical function. Uh, there is research that shows that even though it seems like th there is no data anymore in, in the original form in this model, you can develop techniques that allow you to recover the data that has been no, used to train the model. No, this is yeah. mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah. This is mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. It has been most recently wow. shown in the context of these uh, generative models for images. Um, yeah. where they show, um, well, you can use a prompt, for example, that recovers one, one of the original pictures that was used um, to train it. And it, it, it's very problematic, right, from, from a privacy perspective, yeah. uh, but also from the right to be forgotten perspective. Right, right, right. So what, what if you like train an algorithm to, to do a certain thing? I don't know, like, I don't know, like mm -hmm. the Instagram algorithm, maybe, I guess it knows a lot about you. So it knows that these are your interests. If you press restart, and if you like erase all that information, could you then recover, you could recover all of that? Um, for certain models, under certain okay. circumstances, people, people typically show this for um, cases of individual models and, yeah. and individual settings. But yes, generally, it's but, something that we should, yeah, like it could theoretically be possible. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to data deletion, deletion uh, another aspect is that is uh, this aspect of efficiency. Um, so when you get the deletion request from a user um, and you know you have to update the model because their data was used to train the model, um, how do you remove that tiny bit that corresponds just to that just user that data? I was right? just thinking about the exact same <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah. It's it's one of the um, active research questions that people are thinking about right now. Because one, say, brute force approach would be to retrain the model from scratch. Just remove this one data point and, and retrain the model. But of course, it's very costly in terms of the yeah. compute power. Now, of course, there are lots of sustainability issues that people are starting to think about right. because compute is costly. Um, so people now try to develop techniques that would allow you to remove those um, bits that correspond to an individual user's data without the need to retrain a model. So I think it's a very interesting uh, technical problem that we end up Yeah, also on. because don't you mm -hmm. normally require like a lot of time to train a model? So it's not just like high amounts of data, but it mm -hmm. also needs the time to learn. Mm -hmm. Is that is that true? It depends on the model, but oh. we definitely have very large scale models that yeah. you know take 
a lot of parallel processing power and take right. days and days to train. So, so then, yeah, yeah it would sure. be super inefficient. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But wow. Yeah. That's a, that's crazy. How much is it possible? Is. How much yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, it worries me particularly with social media, just because it does mm -hmm. have such a bad influence on mm -hmm. people. If, um, if people know them better than they know themselves, basically. Mm -hmm. um, but it's good to know that you can, you do have the power to ask for your information to be deleted. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's, I think a lot of people just don't know about that. And especially mm -hmm. like with Google, what if there's like a Google image mm -hmm. of me, let's say, that I want to have taken down? Do mm -hmm. I then, could I contact Google and then they would have to take it down? Or would they say, no, I own the rights of your picture because you've put it on a public server. So now mm -hmm. you don't, you don't have that much say over it anymore. Right. This is a, a, a separate, interesting question. Uh, because so far we talked about the data that we're generating in this part of our user profile. So we can basically tell a company, well, please delete this data from my profile yeah. or delete my account altogether. Um, Deleting data that is created by other people about us yeah. um, is, is, is a slightly different problem. And of course, there, there was this um, case in the past where somebody, I believe in Spain, um, wanted to have information about them removed from Google searches. Mm -hmm. uh, and that led to like a court case. It was had a lot of press coverage. Um, um, an interesting thing about this was that you know, the... the um, in the end, there was even more information about this person on the internet than before. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, before that case started, but but yes, um, we, um, in, I believe in theory we could ask search engines to remove information about us. And again, I am not a legal scholar, so we probably yeah. have to talk to someone who has expertise in this. Uh, I believe an aspect that has to be taken into account here is this issue of public interest. Um, Right. Sometimes we have information, especially about um, you know, public individuals um, or who have who hold public offices. Right. The, 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 there is a question of like, what what are the limits of this right mm -hmm. to erasure of information about that is there about people on yeah. the internet? How much do apps share data between them? So if I have TikTok and I'm using like, so I'm signed up to TikTok, but I am using Safari, for example. Does TikTok get the data of how I use Safari as well, or is this like completely disconnected? Uh, it, it's hard for me to tell uh, because I don't know exactly how the social media work, uh, but it is possible. And if they do, that's probably something that, you know, you have agreed on as part right. of the privacy uh, yeah. uh, terms, terms yeah, of service yeah. when we sign up for the service. Uh, very often this is presented um, in a way um, that doesn't explicitly tell us what is going on. So we would say, well, data is shared with third parties. And it can mean so many, so many different things. So. Yeah. But then again, you know, you also don't want documents of huge amounts of text where you explain everything because you know, no one's mm -hmm. going to go through them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So how is it best then to design an ethical algorithm or one that I don't know, the safest to use or best to use. And actually, we can also start by just talking about algorithms and how mm -hmm. we even create 
them because I mm-hmm. have no idea mm-hmm. how that's done. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm assuming it's some kind of code that you write, mm-hmm. but that's right. The the um, one way to think about an algorithm is that this is just a set of instructions that we give a computer to perform yeah. a task. Um, and so the simplest algorithms are really that. So we specify those steps manually uh, and the computer performs those operations one by one to, to give us the result that we want. Um, now, from these kinds of algorithms, we can move to machine learning algorithms where what we try to do is to you know, introduce more and more automation to, mm-hmm. to that process. Uh, so in machine learning, we would want um, the computer to be able to solve certain tasks based on the patterns that it has seen in, in the data, but without us necessarily having to specify all those steps yeah. um, manually. Um, of course, there are many different machine learning tasks like supervised and unsupervised and, and so on and so forth. But uh, maybe one interesting uh, thing to mention here is that in supervised learning, or when we sort of came from a you know, simpler algorithm to, to, to machine, the machine learning, learning. Uh, when we think about supervised learning, what we still had to do is do this so-called feature engineering, where we still manually have to tell an algorithm um, what features of the data to focus on. Okay. Um, so there was still some some of this manual engineering that that, that was part of so the process. So can you give an example mm-hmm. just to make it easier to understand? Yeah, sure. Uh, so think, for example, um, about a classifier that tries to predict whether a person will repay a loan. Mm-hmm. So this is something that banks very often have, right? You you have an applicant who wants to get a loan uh, and you have to decide, approve yeah. or deny. Um, so, and a, a supervised learning algorithm uh, would take a, a person as a sort of data point and would have to convert this, this application yeah, into a da- data point that is described by features and features are just pieces of information so a feature might be your age Mm -hmm. your education level your yearly income and so on and so forth so we have this multi-dimensional description in in this case of a person and based on that data point on that description of a person we're trying to predict uh, based on the historical patterns that we've seen in the data whether this person is likely to repay repay the loan or not and so uh, the manual effort that is needed here is to come up with this description, like what features are important. Mm-hmm. Right. So there, there's a lot of manual work in in this in these kinds of learning tasks for for the designer of the algorithm uh, to determine what is what is an important information, yeah. um, and um, very often what is my uh, proxy variable. So uh, maybe I have to give another example here. Uh, but because repaying or not repaying a loan is, is, is relatively well defined. But we have other classification tasks where the task is not so well defined. So, for example, um, we want to uh, predict, we want to have a classifier that um, determines admissions to a university. And... What what is that tar- what, what would you like to predict about a person to determine if they should be admitted yeah. to a university? Yeah. You could pick something like well your uh, grades for example or like your 
extracurricular activities. I don't know if you can right. predict your personality mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. put that in. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so these things would, would make a great description, sort of this multidimensional description of a person. But then, um, right, what, what is that, what is that target that we would want to predict about a person? Maybe that they will be successful, that they will graduate one day and not drop out. Mm -hmm. So that might be one target. Um, another target might be that they um, don't fail more than N courses. Okay. Um, yeah. Right. So, so, so some tasks, we want to predict something in the real world, but it's in many cases so ill-defined. And to be able to convert the task into an algorithm, into a, um, um, a learning task, we have to come up with some proxy variable mm -hmm. that we have to predict. And there are lots of issues with, with these proxies, uh, right? Because the fact that somebody fails one course maybe yeah. does not mean that they're overall yeah. going to be successful. Um, and so one of the aspects of um, responsible design is um, to to understand how the choices that we make that sometimes might seem so you know trivial to us as designers of the algorithms can have consequences in the real right. world yeah okay so so that this would be an example of where we um so a machine learning algorithm where we still give it i guess certain information um and then was was there another example of a machine learning algorithm or ai that kind of you give it some information and then it just learns everything and can answer everything. Oh, I think we're still quite far from yeah. the, these kinds so of So basically, learning. if you mm -hmm. want to design an algorithm, um, a machine learning algorithm, mm -hmm. you still have to feed it the correct data and then it just learns from that. But then where are the bound like where are the boundaries of the, the maximum that it can learn? Oh, you would have to talk to a machine yeah. learning person uh, <laughs> yeah. about uh, boundaries. I mean, so far, we have to specify the task. So we don't have this general intelligence that could right. just solve all the tasks for us. So still, um, most learning applications are very So we still focused. have to define the, the yes. task. Yeah. We have to define the task. Uh, in, in many modern uh, learning approaches, for example, in deep learning, uh, more and more things get automated. So for example, in deep learning, we don't have to do that manual work of defining what features are important, right? We, we just right. feed the data and the algorithm is able to figure out like what, what is the important information that we have to... Okay, uh, that we can so, so how is the design different of these two algorithms? One where you have to manually feed it everything, the other one where it just learns. Um, well, the techniques that we use are very different. Um, so the, the, so the programming mm -hmm. is different. Is that what you mean with techniques? Mm -hmm. The the so the programming is different. The um, mathematical approaches that you use inside these algorithms are different, um, and then sort of the the amount of manual effort that you have to put into yeah. the design uh, okay, okay, of, of okay. the task or into uh, converting and processing the data is, is, right. is different. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then what is artificial intelligence? How is that different to <laughs> algorithm and machine learning algorithm? Um, there's, uh, there are so many definitions of what an artificial okay. intelligence is. I just and never know sure. how to correctly use um, it. The, the problem these days is that the artificial intelligence term is just applied to so many things casually. That's, that's <laughs> yes. the problem. Yes. Right. Very often we refer to machine learning as artificial intelligence. Yeah. And, 
um, when we think about social media and these these exactly. recommendation algorithms, we we say artificial intelligence, or uh, sometimes the term people use these days is um, AI. So it stands for artificial intelligence, AI infused um, or, okay. or based on AI. Never heard of that. So it's a very overloaded term uh, these days. Um, but yeah, the, I. I um, you know, How do you use it? <laughs> um, in our work, we actually rarely have to use ah, the term artificial intelligence okay. because we often focus on very specific systems. So yeah. we refer to those systems more concretely, like search engines or recommender systems. Right, right, and then, right. you know, when we have to maybe describe it, we say, well, it's sometimes AI infused. So you, you use some machine learning techniques and... Um, but, but yes, it's a, it's a very overloaded term. So in your kind of work, what... Like, how do you do your work? Do you code? Do you use coding to to do your work? Or is there other mm -hmm. ways? Mathematical models, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. We do different kinds of studies. So the way we approach our research is that we, co we focus on a certain goal or a certain principle that we want to examine, for example, data minimization. Um, and then quickly, when, when um, you want to... Um, convert this abstract principle into something that works in practice. And we talked about, you know, how things are interconnected yeah. and how complex this is. We often end up doing different kinds of studies um, uh, to make sure that we get a good understanding of what this principle means and what implementing it would mean in practice. So yes, some of our studies um, develop algorithms or develop some mathematical definitions that are basically um, forms of translation from say, a legal principle or a principle that has been developed by another field, maybe some ethical or social mm -hmm. principle. So we try to translate that. We do some of this translational work. Once we have those definitions, right, we can develop an algorithm that tries to implement that definition okay. in practice or optimize for that definition. Um, then we do some uh, simulation or data studies. So we have take some existing data sets, we try to feed them into mm -hmm. the proposed algorithms and try to see, well, what's going to happen if we interpret uh, this principle in, in this way? Uh, so we you know, measure then uh, different performance aspects or you know, measure um, the impacts we think the, the performance of the algorithm would have on different yeah. individuals or different groups of people. Uh, we do... Um, we focus also on human factors as well. Uh, so we conduct some user studies and, and surveys where we, for example, um, try to figure out if what what are people's perceptions or understanding of, of those different principles. Um, we do some interdisciplinary studies with colleagues from other fields um, with outputs that are more targeted to, to other communities. So so in our work, we, 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 so, we have this broad mm. spectrum approach. And when you design algorithms, how do you do that? Oh, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, typically, you start from algorithms that are already there, okay. at least in the kind of work that we do. Um, and you know, you have a certain goal, you want to change those algorithms, for example, to satisfy a, um, an ethical constraint, mm -hmm. or you want them to implement the data protection principle. So what you can do is to try to analyze how the algorithms we have currently uh, work um, and identify elements of that algorithm that could be subject to modification that could take us towards those goals that we're trying okay. to achieve. 
so that the algorithm um, aligns with this ethical principle or ethical yeah. constraint or um, yeah the, the you know the data is being processed in a different way right uh, so this is this is how we so you normally process. start from an algorithm that is already known mm -hmm. and then you just modify it mm -hmm. right it either there are different kinds of interventions um, so modifying an algorithm is is uh, is one way in which we could approach this so typically in this um, area of responsible computing uh, we we talk about um, um, three different kinds of interventions that we might develop. They, they're uh, often called uh, pre-processing, in-processing, and post-processing. So the modification of an algorithm would be an in-processing. Mm -hmm. So where you where you where you change the algorithm itself, a pre-processing um, intervention would be an intervention where you try to change the data. Um, <gasps> maybe you. Um, you know, sample some more data and add to your data set because you think it's imbalanced in, in some ways, like it's not representing a certain population of users enough. Um, or um, you can decide to filter out some, some information from your data. So uh, there are different like augmentation or filtering techniques that one might want to apply. So these would be pre-processing mm -hmm. techniques. And then there are the... Um, um, post-processing uh, techniques where you assume, well, we have, we already have a system. Uh, we have a data processing pipeline. We have an algorithm. The algorithm produces a, a result. Um, what we can do is to take that result and modify it in a certain way uh, to take okay. us towards the yeah. goals that we want to achieve. So that would be a post-processing approach. An example of a post-processing approach is when we want to implement um, when we want to um, make a ranking system more fair. Ah. So think about um, an online hiring platform, yeah. for example. In online hiring platforms, a recruiter might come and search for job candidates. So they might issue a query like a machine learning engineer. Um, there are a lot of people, very well qualified yeah. people in this world who are machine learning engineers. And when a person interacts with the results on this web page. You you cannot possibly look through all of the profiles yeah. of the people who are qualified machine learning engineers. Um, so often we see maybe you know ten profiles or maybe ten twenty profiles if we're willing to go to that second page of the results. Um, so some of the fairness interventions that have been developed um, assume that we let the algorithm produce a ranking of candidates as they have before, but then we're going to take those results and reshuffle them. That um, makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To satisfy different, yeah. different fairness yeah, um, yeah, yeah, definitions. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. So how do you envision the future, you know, based on everything that we've talked about with data minimization, the protection laws, data protection, the design of ethical algorithms, what would be like the ideal future for you? Oof, um, I know it's a really yeah. hard question. <laughs> it's probably like so much, but you can just, mm -hmm. you know, tell us your thoughts mm -hmm. and we can break it down then as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to uh, start my answer by saying that I'm very hopeful for the future. And that's yeah. one, one of the reasons why I'm, I'm working in this area to um, hopefully have you know, positively contribute to, to the future of computing. Um, I'm hopeful that this is going to happen because, um, you know, 
because of the recognition that those problems are receiving, I think more and more people realize yeah. uh, you know, what, what the harms are. Um, and with, with that sort of support from all kinds of stakeholders that we have from, you know, the um, regulators, from academia, from users, from uh, non-governmental organizations who are um, 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 thinking about user rights, user digital rights. Uh, I think we're going to uh, come up with um, solutions, with uh, approaches that are very impactful and that actually um, solve the problem. So um, an ideal future uh, for me when it comes to computing is is one that takes us towards even more recognition that, you know, computing is not just, you know, math and algorithms, but it's really this right. ecosystem and um, that um, we all have a responsibility for mm -hmm. um, and we just have to find ways of uh, translating uh, the responsibility and um, translating the goals and the needs into concrete computational yeah. designs. Is there anything that with with all the knowledge that you have, you know, on on data protection, what's going on with companies and stuff? Is there is there anything that you pay attention to when you're using social media apps or when you're surfing the internet or when you're doing when you're giving data away or when you're pressing allow to whatever, mm -hmm. you know? Is there anything that you pay attention to? Um yeah, so there are, um, there are some of the well good practices uh, that I follow. It's, for example, having the um, um, tools that block trackers. Or it's right. possible for, for people to to um, install that. Um, um, you um, well, one can quickly because uh, the consent notices are very often standardized, as I mentioned. I think it's easy to uh, come up or learn how to quickly navigate uh, those, you know, consent yeah. uh, pop-up notices to like decline consent. Do you decline consent often? I try to decline it m most of the right. time. Okay. Um, uh, sometimes it's just very inconvenient because websites, you know, do sometimes do whatever they can to prevent you from declining. But yeah. if it's just two clicks away, then yes, yes, I decline consent. Um, and then... Um, we also try to contribute with our research. Uh, yeah. So one of our recent research lines, for example, looks at this um, um, this question of uh, using another legal ground for data processing legitimate interests. Uh, it's something that we notice is very often used in the consent notices um, that we think is it, it's a loophole to collect more user data. So beyond my the individual yeah. practices I try to implement, you know, we're also trying to. Yeah. Um, to do some research that could help both us and, and other yeah. users into protecting ourselves. But there, data. I think there are like some cases where you would want to give as much data as you can, right? So maybe like Google Maps, for example, mm -hmm. like I use Google Maps all yeah. the time, especially when I'm driving, like it's very convenient because mm -hmm. I, and the more, the more users use Google Maps, the better it's going to be. And then I know exactly where traffic jams are. Mm -hmm. So I guess there might be some cases where actually you want to allow companies to use your data. Again, though, the question is at what cost? Because mm -hmm. are they only going to be using it for Google Maps, for example, mm -hmm. or are they going to be using mm -hmm. it for other things? It's it's a fantastic example. Um, um, when it comes to Google Maps and other services that we might deem really useful, right? Where we're getting really yeah. useful results that are helping us achieve something more effectively or more efficiently. Um, I think there is the question of 
giving users the agency to decide, I think this is currently not the case, right? That we, we don't have a sense of what we're getting in, in return for our data. So I think there are opportunities for developing transparency techniques right. and, 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 um, consent agency techniques, um, um, that, yeah, would essentially let people decide and, and yeah. even figure out what, what it is yeah. that they're offering the data for. I, I, I really like this example. I guess that and, is actually, it isn't, sorry, I didn't mm -hmm. want to interrupt, but it is an example where, um, like, yeah, if there was more transparency, maybe then you would be more willing to give your data because you know it's being used for something good. Mm -hmm. That's um, right. And when it comes to protecting myself, uh, just one example, <laughs> I just remembered uh, that uh, um, um, so very often when you're sharing links to news articles or links to certain websites, uh, what is often added to the link is like some unique identifier at, at the end. Uh, and this is something that I always try to strip, uh, oh, strip from the <laughs> from the link because I think, and you know, very for for some reason people rarely talk about this, but I think it's a way for companies to like uncover social networks because if you share this link with your friends, and very often that extra ID that is added might be uniquely uh, generated for oh, you, and then everyone's like, oh, this person got the same link that this person generated originally. So it's, you know, there are ways for companies to collect data in all kinds of ways where the mechanisms yeah. are not super clear. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing I also try to do. That to is fascinating. Yes. <laughs> I didn't know that. See, in these things, like, how can you know them? Like, if yeah. you don't know the ways in which data is being harvested, you don't pay yeah. attention to that, right? Yeah. You're right. It, it, it's a very complex ecosystem and, you know, even people who have expertise, like even us who build some of these systems, yeah. it, it's hard for us to, uh, to have a, you know, good, um, grasp of everything that is going on. Um, right. That, that is like through this conversation, I actually also came to realize that like, even the ones that you'd consider experts in that field, there's still so much that's unknown. And, but I think working together, like the inter interdisciplinary work mm -hmm. is extremely mm -hmm. important in this field. Yes, I, I also think so. And that's the reason why I'm um, so excited and grateful for the collaborators who, yeah, exactly. who um, exactly. contribute to our projects. So tell me also about your experience at Microsoft then and, you know, mm -hmm. how research is different in a company versus academia. There are many aspects to that question as well. Um, because the research in academia uh, can be so different in different places and the same is true of companies. Um, in a company, it really depends on the kind of lab that you end up working in. And I'm talking about computer science research because I'm pretty sure it's different, Yay, for example, in bi biomedical fields and, and others. Um, there are some research labs that do a lot of basic research. Uh, so this is um, a kind of lab that I spent my postdoc time in. So I focused uh, mostly on basic research uh, during that time. There are some labs that do purely applied research. So research uh, whose goal is to develop new products, develop new features for products. Uh, and there are labs that do research in between. Uh, so very often this kind of research is called youth-inspired research, where mm -hmm. your goal is to ideally contribute to some concrete products uh, down the road, but the research you do 
goes in more in the direction of, of basic research. So there's a whole spectrum of the kinds of research that is happening in, in the industry. Um, same is true for academia, especially yeah. in computer science, um, because the, the boundaries between industrial and academic research are often often blurred. Oh, and this is, um, I guess, exemplified by, by the fact that lots of people actually move forth and back between industry and academia. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. So that's something like in chemistry, it's very hard to do. Like once you start off in industry, you can't move back to academia. That's not not something that happens that's right it's, it's a much harder direction to yeah. move into but there there are people who succeed right the important part is to keep publishing well in in the industry, in industry. but in, in in computer science industry um yeah there are many labs that actually do this externally facing research uh, researchers are sometimes encouraged to be, for example, guest lecturers at, yeah. at local universities. So it's certainly possible to to keep a profile that would allow you to to come come back to academia. I do agree; it's a much harder yeah. uh, direction right. to, to to move into. Um, and many groups in academia do research that could also well be done in the industry. So, for example, people who work on developing those language models or other generative models, right? Very often you have groups both in academia and in industry working on similar topics. And that's another reason for why those boundaries are, are, are sometimes blurred. Yeah. Certain types of research is much easier to do in industry in, in computing at the moment because of access to computational resources. Mm. It's now being actually recognized as a problem because many, uh, many results uh, many approaches that are being developed by the industry who have access to huge amounts of computing resources, um, it, it's not possible to replicate them outside of those industrial settings, right? The, uh, academic researchers True. don't yeah. have Makes sense. access to, to, to these kinds of resources. And so there are the, you know, the questions around yeah, replicability, use, usefulness of, of these solutions. Uh, so difficult questions that we're going to have to yeah. grapple with in the years to come. So then why did you decide why did you choose academia over industry? Mm -hmm. um, I love the freedom that I have yeah. in academia to pursue uh, the topics that I think are important and yeah. that I'm excited about, um, especially in, in the context of responsible computing and data protection. Um, in academia, you have more freedom to perhaps examine uh, questions that um, are difficult or maybe a little bit uncomfortable mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, in terms of restricting collection of data. Um, yeah, I love you mentoring students as well. Okay, yeah, that's a big thing. <laughs> Do you think it's easier to form collaborations? For example, like mm -hmm. you, when you, if you collaborate with someone from the MPI of innovation, is it easier to have those collaborations in industry? Because it's just, you know, in one company, there's all the departments, which maybe it's easier to communicate than if you as an academic have to externally go try to find someone. I would say it's it's comparatively hard. Okay. okay. Um, it's, it's, or maybe it's, it's similarly hard in both places, yeah. but perhaps for different reasons. Um, in academia, like everybody is busy. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's one of the <laughs> main reasons why it's it's sometimes hard to establish the collaborations. Yeah. Um, in the industry, you know, people have, um, sometimes they have to align the projects that they're working on with their 
you know, quarterly or yearly goals. Right. And then they have to agree with their managers as to what they're working on. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I think it's true both about academia and the industry. Sometimes just, um, you know, people might be interested in similar topics, but just their um, timelines don't don't align where somebody would say, for example, well, I love this project, but I have so many projects going on right now. So I could hope to help you with your project maybe six months from now. Yeah. And so this alignment of availability, I think it's a, it's, it's a difficult one. Um, it's probably true. Yeah, it's probably the case for both yeah. academic and in industrial researchers. And I'm just curious, how does you, how do you like how, how do you structure your research group? Mm-hmm. Um, just because, uh, you know, like for me, I have my labs, like we all work in labs, we do our experiments by our fume hoods. Mm-hmm. But here, I don't know, is it a lot of individual work? Or do people work together? Yeah, it's, it's hard for me to understand how you yeah. run your research group. Mm-hmm. So in, in computer science, and even in this area, I believe people have different approaches to how they run their group. Um, my approach is that I want people want to give folks in my group um, a, a very broad perspective on the kinds of problems that are important in this area. Uh, that's why we have a research agenda uh, that develops. Uh, so we have three different lines of research within each those lines of research. Um, we focus on different aspects, something that we already talked before. Yeah. Right? We do some algorithmic studies and data studies and user studies, um, interdisciplinary papers. Um, I, um, it's, it's difficult to do in academia to maintain this level of interdisciplinarity. And this is what I love Max Planck for Mm. that, you know, this is an environment that allows us to do this kind of work. Um, but also one way for me, um, to be able to, um, you know, create this diversity of perspectives inside the groups to host a lot of visitors. Okay. Uh, so we've hosted a lot of visiting PhD students and interns yeah. who very often have, e- even if they come from computer science, uh, they have a slightly different background, so a slightly different focus. And hosting them in a group um, gives them an opportunity to interact with people who, who have a um, um, slightly different set of experiences, but also for us to learn from them. Um, we have a weekly, uh, group meeting. Okay. I wanted meeting. to ask, yes. so you do mm-hmm. have like a weekly group meeting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Where, what would we do? I actually invite a lot of my colleagues whom we collaborate, um, on papers, whom we collaborate with on papers to join those weekly meetings. And some of them do join us weekly. Yeah. And then we have, you know, folks, for example, from philosophy or other hum- human, human, nice. um, fields in the humanities join us for those discussions. And these, these meetings, um, they're not a typical reading group, but very often we pick a reading as a starting point for a discussion. And we don't only read papers from computer science, but we often pick, uh, papers from say philosophy or law. So what about philosophy? Like what are some philosophical papers or questions that you have discussed? Mm -hmm. For example, um, a couple of months ago, we read this paper about um, um, Confucian uh, ethics in technology and and how to implement that. Um, For these kinds of papers, most of our, well, we have different backgrounds in in the group, but very often these are papers that are very, very far from um, our areas and reading them, 
you know, it's um, the way I often describe this is that very often, you know, you read a paragraph and you understand all individual words and terms in this paragraph, yeah. but you have like no idea what it's trying to say. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it's 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 very useful because even if we don't fully understand that paper, I think we're able to come up with some new ideas and perhaps connect them to something yeah. that we know and just really learning to become comfortable with the discomfort of not understanding 100%. and not knowing. I think 100%. it's very useful yeah. in terms of our, you, you know, our ability to be great researchers. Yeah, I agree. Um, so we very often do that. And also people whom I hire for my group um, come from different backgrounds. Um, I myself, I am trained as a computer scientist. Um, the first PhD student who joined my group, um, she did her undergrad in psychology and master's in human computer interaction. Uh, I had recently a postdoc uh, with the background in computer science and electrical engineering. And I will have another person join in a couple of months uh, with background in computer science and law and public policy. Wow. Um, so I think now that this field develops and we have more publication venues who appreciate the kind of work that we do and, and sort of recognize these kinds of contributions, uh, I think it will be easier and easier to, to, yeah. to do research this way. But this is also something that, that we're you know, experimenting with on the meta level, like how, how to do research in, in a new way uh, for, right. uh, for, for this field. Right. So what are like the prerequisites kind of to join your group as a computer science group? If you say that people, you know, someone that studied psychology mm -hmm. joined, do you need to know how to, like, do you need to understand how programming works and know a few coding languages or mm -hmm. I don't know? What are the requisites? Yeah, mm -hmm. it depends for what a person would like to work on. Uh, so I have some people who focus on uh, developing new algorithms, and some people who focus more on user studies. I mean, it's a prerequisite uh, mm -hmm. uh, to have some existing skills that would allow you to get going with uh, some research, um, and then the readiness to learn a lot right. and the readiness to. Uh, you know to to yeah exactly be be comfortable with immersing yourself in you know topics that are just really far from your yeah. area of expertise and uh, the ability to connect the dots i think it's important for doing this kind of work um and um i would say um being able to respect uh people of different backgrounds to respectfully discuss with them um, to appreciate uh, different research traditions, uh, mm. different styles of doing work, different research methodologies. Uh, those are some of the prerequisites that I think right. are really important to do this kind of work. But off topic question, how many female are there in your or at this institute? Because I could imagine that computer science is a very male dominated field. It still is, unfortunately, and there are lots of initiatives that, that try to change this. Um, I, so far, my group um, has kept a relatively good gender balance, um, but, you, you know, the, um, it's, it's probably a topic for a, a separate uh, podcast well, episode, right? Yeah, it, it's, a, <laughs> it's, huge a, topic. Yeah. it's a huge topic. And it's also a very hard topic where it's I don't think there's a clear solution. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the biggest minds have thought about, you know, what can we do mm -hmm. to increase female and male dominated fields? And no one's come mm -hmm. up with a great solution yet. So mm -hmm. it's clearly very hard. Right. But 
yeah if people recognize the problem and things are you know slowly changing for the better so yeah so I'm, I'm hopeful yeah <laughs> nice well Asia, thank you so much for this episode i learned a lot and i think the audience did as well um and i hope that it also is making them more aware of maybe a, a subject area topic area that they didn't think that much of beforehand so thank you for your time i really appreciate it thank you so much for having me i really enjoyed talking to you that's it thank you all so much for listening if you would like to learn more about dr azia biega's work please visit the max Planck institute for security and privacy website and also her own website which you can find in the description below and if you like our podcasts please make sure to follow us on our Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram page. This is the best way to stay up to date with what episodes we will be releasing in season four. Thanks again for listening. Bye. Austrian Magazine, the podcast is brought to you by the Max Planck PhD Net Science Communication Group known as the Austrian Magazine. The intro-outro music is composed by Srinath Rankumar and the pre-intro jingle is composed by Gustavo Carrizzo. If you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to write us at offspring.podcasts at phdnet.mpg.de. Until next week, stay safe, stay healthy. Bye!